Well, good evening. I know people are still coming in. Just make your way in. Uh, I have a couple of announcements before we get started. One, uh, the last time I'll announce this to you, the Israel trip, that uh, Crossings Israel trip scheduled for May 23rd through June 4th still has a few slots available, but it closes um, next uh, Friday, I believe. So if you are, are interested in registering for that, Laura's got some brochures, has all the sites and the information, but the deadline to sign up and pay a deposit so that they can reserve airline and all is next week. It is going to be a great trip. It's a study uh, trip, so uh, we'll see all the great sites, some great archaeological sites, uh, Jerusalem, of course, north, the Negev, some of the areas we're going to start to talk about now with Abraham, by the way, in this lesson tonight. And then we'll do teaching at each site. And so I th it, it's a great opportunity. So if you can, you're welcome to come. And again, Laura's got some brochures, but the deadline for signing up and paying the deposit's coming soon. The other thing, in case I forget, we are, uh, as you know, we're going through the book of Genesis, and we're going to go right into Revelation, and there, you'll see some really interesting tie-ins. But next week, I want to do a, I want to pause and do a special lesson, and remind me at the end to tell you what that is. Okay, it'll make more sense at the end than it will right now. So, jumping into uh, lesson tonight, we have finished what's called the prehistory portion of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. And now we begin those hugely powerful stories of the patriarchal period of Genesis, the foundation of the Jewish people, and really some of the great themes of the entire Bible. We've seen God's been on a journey of preparing his people, in some sense repairing the fall of humanity. I hope from studying the garden and Cain and Abel and the dispersion and all of that, you get a sense of, of the depth and the breadth of the disruption of the, of the order of the universe. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but we were not only broke our harmony with God, but with each other and with the creation. And so you see God trying to heal more than just, this is more than just we sinned, so we're going to hell, so God's going to resolve that by sending Jesus and giving us an opportunity to go to heaven. That's true. Don't misunderstand me. But there's so much more that God's doing and so much more to the story. Well, in our last uh, lesson, we talked about this, this concept of, if you remember Noah and the flood, a kind of a new beginning. Mankind had hit, hit a low, low level, and there's this new beginning with Noah and the flood. And so you have the idea of a remnant. In other words, God taking a little portion and then beginning to regrow it. You're going to see that idea over and over. Everywhere from the Exodus to the teaching of Jesus to Revelation, the idea of a remnant and God working with a small thing and making it big. We also saw the idea of a covenant. God made a covenant or a contract or an agreement with Noah that would apply to all of humanity called the Noahide Covenant. And it basically is, are seven things that all humanity is expected to do. And so as God begins his, if you want to think about it, it's like humanity going through rehab. And so this is the beginning of our rehabilitation, or redemption would be a really religious word for that, but the idea of rehabilitating humanity. We begin, like you would with your two-year-old, some rules. Not a lot of rules, because they can't understand a lot of rules, but you begin by setting some boundaries. Think of this covenant in that way. So that's God beginning to work through the idea of a covenant. And covenant is a key idea. 
because you're going to see that over and over again through the scriptures is God dealing with people through various covenants and we're going to see a second one in the lesson tonight the other thing we saw was the story of the Tower of Babel Tower of Babel has just profound implications for humanity but we begin to situate things in history we talked about the Tower of Babel no one knows exactly what it is but for various reasons it's generally thought to have been situated near Babylon in Mesopotamia that's modern-day Iraq and there is in modern-day Iraq for example in Ur the ancient city of Ur the great the ruins of the great ziggurat this is what it might have or probably did in fact look like is a huge massive building temple for its time it was it was just unbelievably huge it was unbelievable monument to the god the chief god of the babylonians in fact whose name was marduk meet him later in the scriptures as well but so basically the tower of babel begins to enter history and so you can still see the remains of that today and so into this time period into history into archaeology we begin chapter 12 of genesis and in walks this guy named abraham and that's the story that I'd like to just tell you in this lesson, is we're just going to tell you the story of Abraham. Chapter 11 ends with a genealogy, and it ends with a leading up and tracing from Noah to Abraham. There are ten generations listed from Adam to Noah, and you'll notice ten generations from Noah Abraham. Abraham is descended from one of the three sons of Noah. His name is Shem. And from Shem, and I'm passing over a lot of stuff in the scripture to move on with the story, but basically Shem is where we get our word Semitic or Semites. And so Shem is the father of the Semitic peoples, all the various Semitic people groups. Think, think Middle East today, basically. I mean, that's, that's a rough way to think about it. Well, Abraham is part of that descent from Shem in the Middle East. Abraham comes onto the scene with a lot of legend surrounding him. The scripture is going to give you some fact, but there's also a lot of legend around Abraham. Because Abraham enters a world that's worshiping a lot of gods. It's kind of the legacy of the Tower of Babel and spreading out and mankind pursuing its own interests. Abraham comes as a really unique and interesting figure in a couple of ways. First way is that Abraham traditionally is thought of as the first person who really turned back to monotheism, the belief in the one, and not only one God, but the one true God. That ziggurat at Ur was a monument to a whole pantheon of gods. But Abraham is thought to have come to an understanding of there is just one true God. In fact, the Koran has some legendary information about Abraham, and so does some of the Jewish traditions outside the Bible. I'll tell you one story that comes from the Jewish tradition outside the Bible. is the, According to tradition, Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker. That was his uh, occupation. As he would take uh, metal or wood and he would fashion idols and he would sell them. And people would set them up in their house and they would worship them. We don't worship idols today. Well, actually, we do. We just call it a television set. But basically, you know, you kind of bow down and just 
stare at the television set. But he was an idol maker. And one of the stories about Abraham was is that when he was young, he came to an understanding that, that idols can't possibly be real, that there must just be one true God. And so one night, he went into his father's shop, and he smashed all of the idols except one, the biggest one. And he took the stick, and he put it in the hand of the largest idol. Well, his father came in the next day and said, what happened? Who did this? Abraham, you know, explain this to me. And he said, I don't know. It looks like the largest idol destroyed all the others. And his father said, what are you talking about, Abraham? It can't do that. And Abraham replied, well, if, if this idol is just a piece of wood and can't do that, why do we worship it? And so you get this sense that Abraham, this traditional material that Abraham, even in an early age, began to sense a knowledge of the true God. Well, as far as the scriptures are concerned, there's none of that kind of material. Abraham comes on the scene in chapter 12, literally out of thin air. You don't know anything about him. There's nothing remarkable about him. For all we know, he was not president of the Chamber of Commerce. He was not a leading figure in the city of Ur. He was not a political figure. He's just a guy who lives in the city of Ur. And one day, he has an interesting encounter and he has an encounter with God. And so chapter 12 opens up, and it just abruptly says this. It just says, Now the Lord spoke to Abram. And his name is going to change from Abram to Abraham. I'm just going to call him Abraham. Those, those words actually mean almost the same thing. They mean exalted father. But he gets renamed by God later. But I'm just going to call him Abraham. So God comes to Abraham one day, and he says, Listen, I want you to get up, and I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave Ur and your kindred and your father's house. He says, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So literally, the scripture just comes into history out of the blue picks this guy Abraham. I can see him going home with his lunch pail, you know, and he, he has this encounter with God. He walks and he said, Sarah, you won't believe what happened to me today, honey. Uh, we're going to sell the house and we're going to move somewhere. And that's literally the way it splashes into existence. And it does that intentionally. Now, historically, this map shows you and traces what's going to happen over the next few chapters is that Abraham and his family journey to Haran, and from there, Abraham and Sarah, after encountering God, journey into the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. But in that time, it was called Canaan because the Canaanites lived there. So he's going to come down into what's modern-day Syria and then a little further south into modern-day Israel. Well, this call comes to him, and there are certain key things that you begin to see here. First of all, God is going to... Not only is he working with all of humanity through the Noahide covenant, now he's going to pick or select a certain group of people, and he's going to do some specific things with that group of people in order to influence humanity. And so what he's doing is he's making another covenant, this time with a group of people. But here's another key idea, is the idea of election. The idea of God selecting somebody for a specific purpose. And so Abraham has been 
chosen. So this idea of God electing. Now, does there anything in the scripture that says God sent out a request and said, who'd like to be my chosen people? And Abraham said yes, or he won the lottery on that deal? No. It looks like it's all about God choosing this guy, Abraham. And so you get this concept of election, which is going to play into you, your and my life as well. Because when we get to New Testament times, you're going to realize that Jesus died for you and me before we were ever born. And so it's unilaterally an action of God. In other words, there was no particular merit in Abraham to become God's chosen people, and there's no particular merit in you or me to become God's chosen people. It's something that God did. We call it grace. And in the Old Testament, that word's not really used much, but that's what's happening here. He's been chosen. The other interesting thing is you notice that God calls Abraham, but he doesn't tell him where he's going. One of the remarkable pieces about the call of Abraham is he said, get up and go to a land that I will show you. Now, imagine that conversation. Sarah says, okay, I'm really not thrilled about selling the house and moving because we just did that remodel. I don't know if we can get our money back out of the house, but that's fine. Where did God tell us to go? I don't know. I just know we're going to get up, we're going to get in the car, and we're going to hit the road. Now, that's the call. It's not very specific. And so not only does it require faith to believe God, it requires faith to believe God and you have no idea where you're going. So this idea of, a, of a tell, asking him to leave his security, break his normal ties without seeing the end game. But you know, that's also, I want you to see the gospel in what's happening here. God, in the very beginning, is setting the groundwork for the gospel. Jesus calls us to faith. And he calls us to leave our security, to let go of the world, to let go of our worldly ways without telling us the end game. Well, what will my life be like if I do that, Jesus? He said, just get up and follow me. Well, okay, will I prosper? Will I be safe? You know, oh, can you tell me how that can? No, just get up and follow me. It's really a lot like the call of Abraham. And you're going to see the same thing. It's like, do you trust me? Do you have faith? Well, that's what God said to Abraham, and Abraham did. He actually got up, and they left. And that's another key idea in faith, isn't it? The idea that trusting God always, always implies movement. God didn't say to Abraham, I want you to trust me, and you can stay right here. I'll bring the world to you. He said, no, get up and leave and go somewhere. And the same thing with us. God doesn't say, listen, you are fine the way you are. Jesus died on the cross for you. You just keep living your life, and when you happen to die, I got you covered. Faith demands movement. God has, is going somewhere. So that's kind of the call of Abraham. And so he begins this journey, and it's an amazing journey. But our tendency is to think of Abraham as this, oh, great man of faith. And if I can do anything in this lesson, I want you to... I want to shrink Abraham down, not because he isn't a man of faith, but I want to shrink him down so that he's somebody you and I can identify with because he's a guy like you and me. And I want to show you his, in his story how you'll see that. First, he does something remarkable. He believes this God and he gets up and he goes. But the very next thing that happens shows you how much he, how human he is 
and how difficult he, it is for him to continue to trust God. He goes to the land of Canaan, and he's uh, 75 years old, by the way. When he goes to the land of Canaan, he gets the call and he heads that direction. Well, once he gets there, he's, he's waiting and waiting because God's made some promises, but nothing's happening with it, right? If I'm going to be a great nation, he's going to have to have some kids. doesn't have any kids. If he's going to have a land, God's going to have to do something because there are people living here. What, what am I supposed to do with that? And so he waits and he waits. And while he's waiting, there happens to be a drought in that land. And so in chapter 12 continues an interesting little part of this story. It says there was a famine in the land, so he went down to Egypt. He left and went a little further south. And as he was about to go into Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, he says, you are a beautiful woman, and when they see you, they're going to say, that's his wife, he said, and they will kill me to get you. So tell them that you are my sister. Which you learn later in the story is partly true, that she is also the daughter uh, of his father, but not of his mother. Half, half sister, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. But he's basically said, tell them that you're my sister and don't say that we're married, and that way they'll uh, treat me well because of you. And so he came there, and the Egyptians saw she was beautiful, and Pharaoh, the king, notices her. And so he takes her as his wife. And it says, because of that, he treats Abraham very well, and Abraham is able to prosper and make it through the drought and so forth. But then Pharaoh begins to realize that God is inflicting some punishment on him, and it, it comes to him that he realizes that this is because he's got Abraham's wife. Well, needless to say, he's incredibly upset. He says, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was my sister? And so now, here's your thing, here's your wife, here's your stuff, get out. You know, you kicks him out, and he goes back to the land of Canaan. And my point here in this is to simply give you the other side of Abraham. Because I want you to realize that his story is really your and my story as well. And that's hopeful, because Abraham is known in history as the great man of faith. Every Jew in the world looks back to Abraham as the reservoir of faith and merit and righteousness. And yet you're going to realize that, that he's very much like us. So the same guy that left Ur and went to the Canaan and was faithful, lost his faith, if you will, in the face of, of a little danger in Egypt, and, and begins to do things that really lack integrity. Martin Luther said, when, in talking about this, he said, you know, Abraham lost sight of the word. He lost sight of God. And I've always thought that was a great way to describe how we sometimes, even though we have faith, we trust God, but when life hits us in the face, like Abraham, we don't act like we trust God. We, we lose sight of God sometimes. Well, he goes back to Canaan, and when he gets to Canaan, uh, he's kind of concerned. He, he basically says, look, it's been a long time. It's been, in, actually, it's been about 11 years. And he said, and God gave me those promises, but nothing's happening. And so, in chapter 15, I'll give you a little summary here. God comes to Abraham in Canaan. He said, listen, Abraham, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm your shield and your very great reward. He said, I, I still remember you. I remember the promises that I made. Abraham said, look, I'm here. I did what you told me. What are you going to do? And looks into how he begins to express and wrestle with God a little bit. He's not rebellious. He, he just doesn't understand. Does he have faith? Yes. 
Is he questioning? Yes. And you know what? That's also reassuring for us. He says, now, but God, if, if I could just ask one question, what can you possibly give me since I don't have any kids? Remember that land thing? Remember all those descendants? I don't know if you noticed, but there's no little rugrats running around here. You know, don't see any toys. No kids. He said, so how, how are you going to do this? And God says, this is really interesting. God just says, I'm the Lord, and I brought you here, and so that's it. Abraham goes, well, okay, you are the Lord, and you did bring me here. But then he says, but how can I know that you can really do this? What's he really asking God? This is kind of bold. He says, how can I know that you can do what you said you're going to do? How can I know that you're trustworthy? And I don't know about you, but I've asked that question a lot. And Abraham asked it, and we've all asked that question, not in those words, but there have been times when we've wrestled with, how can I know that you actually will deliver on those promises? How can I know, Romans 8, 28, that in all things you work things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his promise? How can I know that? Well, that's what Abraham asked him. And again, interestingly, God doesn't really answer that. Instead, there's that famous scene where he says, I'll tell you what, go get some animals. I want you to go get a heifer. I want you to get a ram. You know, in other words, get the dove, get the pigeon, bring them here. You may remember this scene. He says, bring them here, cut them in half, and sit down, and we're just going to do a deal right here. We're going to literally cut a covenant. And so Abraham does. And God comes and walks through, you know, the smoking fire pot after night. He walks through that and then says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And he says this, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. He's making, he's reaffirming those two promises. First of all, to your descendants, meaning you're going to have descendants. And secondly, you're going to possess this land. Despite all evidence to the contrary, that's what's going to happen. You notice, interestingly, he doesn't really answer Abraham's question because he said, how? And God says, I will. And he says, and I'll bind myself to you if you'll bind yourself to me. He says, you walk before me and be faithful, and I will deliver on these promises. And so Abraham makes a covenant. So now God has this covenant with all people, but he has this covenant with this chosen group of people. And that's an idea that you're going to see again, because by the way, you are one of those groups of people. But with Abraham and his descendants, he said, you be faithful to me, and I'm going to deliver these promises. Why? Because Abraham's a good guy? No. Because Abraham just got lucky? Maybe. But really because it continues to advance God's purposes for restoring humanity. Without Abraham, there's no Jewish people. Without the Jewish people, there's no Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there's no hope for you or for me. And so God begins to set in motion a redemptive plan for humanity. This is all the same plan that God's had from the time of Genesis. A couple of interesting things, by the way. I just want you to notice now that you know enough to see this, it's really kind of cool. Remember in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled, God said, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. And remember that little word play? Adam is his name, and the name for ground is Adamah. And so out of the ground you came, out of the Adamah you came, so I'm going to name you Adam. By the way, there are little word plays like that all through the Hebrew here, and I'll try to point a couple of them out. But he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, mankind became alienated from creation, not just from God. 
But notice what God is doing here. He doesn't have to give Abraham a country. I mean, we look back and we go, oh yeah, the Jews, the land of Canaan, Israel, etc. God doesn't have to do that. He does that for a specific purpose. You notice how Abraham is a wanderer. Remember Cain, who became a wanderer in all the earth? Tower of Babel, the people wanted to settle down, but they got scattered. Now God takes this wanderer, and he says, I'm going to reattach you to the land. Think now about the Jewish people and how attached they are to the land of Israel. God's reattaching us to the land. And so it's interesting how he does this. So he's going to reattach Abraham to the land. So he gives this wanderer the promise of a permanent home, and he gives this childless couple the promise of a child. And so God begins to give these promises, but there's tension because he doesn't have any kids, and there are other people living in the land. And so you see tension in the story, which mirrors our lives, doesn't it? There's tension in the Christian life, too. You have the promises of God on the one hand, and you have a world that doesn't line up with the promises of God. That's exactly what Abraham saw. He said, I hear you saying that, God, and I trust you, but as I look around, I begin to feel tension. You know, I, I don't see how you're going to do it. You and I probably have that, that same thought every day, don't we? It's like, I hear your promises, I trust you, but I just don't see how you're going to bring that to pass in the midst of a world that, that looks like it's, it's accelerating on its way downhill. Well, you see that tension in the story, but it gets worse. In chapter 16, now, 11 years later, and Abraham said, okay, I believe God. He said he's going to do it. We have a covenant. Must be waiting on me because Sarah says, look, we're too old. We're 86 years old now, and so we're not likely to have a child. So she comes to Abraham in chapter 16, and she says, and she does something that's really common in the Near East. She said, I'm not going to have a child. So why don't you have a child with Hagar, my maid, and that'll be like I'll have a child through her, so to speak. Think like surrogate mom. And that was pretty common, by the way. In archaeological records, that was a normal thing to, to be done in those circumstances. And so he does. Biggest mistake he ever made. A mistake we're still paying for. But anyway, he decides maybe God's not moving fast enough. We'll just take care of this on our own. And so he does. And he has a child named Ishmael. And he loves Ishmael. Ishmael is a great little godly name. It means God hears. And uh, the story of Hagar and Ishmael is powerful, and we'll talk a little more about that in a subsequent lesson. But you see this, he thinks now that everything has worked out. In other words, God's worked everything out one way or another. I helped him along a little bit. Now we've got Ishmael. Have a child. Now God can make all these promises come true. Except for the little glitch that happens in 17. God comes to Abraham and he says, hey Abraham, I'm renewing my promise to you and you and Sarah are gonna have a child. And Abraham says, well, I don't know if you noticed, but we took care of that deal. And so here's little Ishmael, who at this point in time is about 13 years old. He's like, we actually got this covered. Just go ahead and deliver on the promises. And God says, and Abraham says, maybe Ishmael could be the one, you know, to live under the blessing. And God said, yes, but your wife Sarah is going to bear a son like I told you. And you're going to call him Isaac. And I'm going to establish my covenant with him and his descendants because that's what I told you. Now, as for Ishmael, I have heard you, which is 
uh, a play on his name, by the way. Ishmael means God hears. I hear you, he says, and I will make him into a great nation, and I'll bless him. But he's not going to be the one through whom these, these promises come. So I will bless Ishmael, but not in the way you think and not for the reason that you think. And so you see even more tension. Now Abraham realizes that because of something I've done, not only do I have the promises and I don't have a kid, I don't have a child to do it, I went ahead and acted, and now I've made things even more complicated because God says, no, this is the way I'm going to do it. And again, can you see our story in this? How many times have I decided that God doesn't seem to know what to do here, but I'm pretty sure, and God seems to be moving a little slowly, so I'm going to help him along and then only come to realize that my way isn't God's way. Remember that great proverb, there is a way that seems right to a man, but really in the end it leads to death. You know, a man plans his course, but the Lord orders his steps. In other words, we see that Abraham story playing out. So Abraham's got a problem. And in fact, it's a big problem. So the Lord comes again and he says to uh, Abraham, and Sarah's listening in, he said, listen, I'm going to be back in about a year. And Sarah's going to have a child. Sarah's over there laughing bitterly. I mean, she's just, you know, laughing in just pain, you know, and disgust, like, how could this possibly be? This is ludicrous. Then the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm too old? And he asked this question. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's an interesting question. You're going to hear that again, by the way, in Jesus' teaching. Jesus is going to bring that up a couple of times as well. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And now, finally, we've hit the crucial question. Because so far, you have promises of God and tension in Abraham's life because he doesn't see how this is going to work out. And the way he tried to work it out, God says, no, that's not the way this is going to happen. And so he says, instead, you're going to have a child like I told you. He says, do you believe that there's anything that's too hard for the Lord? That's a question worth remembering. Well, chapter 21, you see that, uh, in, uh, in fact, this uh, crucial question gets answered because it says Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time when God had told him that he would. And so Abraham called the name of his son Isaac. The play on the word there, Isaac means he laughs. And Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. And so Sarah, who laughed such a bitter, hopeless laugh a year ago, now laughs with joy because, unbelievably, God has done exactly what he said he would do in a way that no one could have predicted. And so she does have this child. And again, I have to pause and point out to you again another connection. Do you remember that great prophecy in Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A prophecy about Jesus, a, pro a promised son, a promised child. Isaac is that foreshadowing of a promised child. A child through whom the inheritance will come. A child through whom God's promises will be delivered. Isaac is going to be the child through whom God delivers the promises of a great nation and the land and bless all the earth through you. And in Jesus, you see the promised child through whom God will deliver his promises, further promises that we're going to see to the world. So you see, Isaac is really kind of a foreshadowing of Christ, isn't he? And what's happening to Abraham as he wrestles with his faith 
is a foreshadowing of what God's going to do in a much bigger sense later. So they have the child. He laughs, but now there's a problem. And the problem is this. What are we going to do with Ishmael? Well, it doesn't work out very well for Ishmael because Sarah says, guess what? I have a child now. Get rid of the slave girl and get rid of that kid. And so Abraham sends him away. And he moves down into, according to tradition, what is now Saudi Arabia. And so you see this tension, this family tension, resolve itself as Isaac the child of promise, but Ishmael the firstborn is cast out. And so the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac become enemies. And that's a theme that we'll pick up in a later lesson as well. But you begin to see the beginning. Ishmael goes on, you learn in chapter 25, to become the, the father of 12 tribes. And he becomes a great nation, a large group of people. And they settle in what's now Saudi Arabia. And so tradition says that Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab people. Isaac, as you know, is going to become in the line of the father of the Jewish people, of Israel, the Israelites. He's going to have a son who's going to have 12 sons who are 12 tribes, and we'll talk about that in the future because that's a powerful story, that'll become the 12 tribes of Israel. Ishmael has the 12 tribes of Arabia. And so down to our day, you see this kind of tension. And this tension comes from, again, fallen humanity. <clears throat> That's where the tension in our world in the scriptures comes, is from our fallenness, our proclivity towards sin. God continues to be true to his promises, and, and unbelievably so. But you see the pathos and the heartbreaking events that happen here around Ishmael and Isaac. Now, this is where the Koran's going to part ways. We'll talk more about this next week. But this is where the Koran parts ways big time with the Old Testament, with the Bible. Because the Koran is going to see Ishmael as the oldest being the son of promise. They don't believe this part of the Old Testament. And the Koran says, no, it's Ishmael. And some of the events that happen in the Old Testament with Isaac, the Koran says, no, actually, that was Ishmael that that happened to. And Ishmael is the one who's been promised the land, not Isaac. And so the Quranic tradition is very different from the Hebrew scriptures and the biblical tradition on these points. Well, at this point, though, as sad as it is, everything's been worked out. Abraham's like, wow, who'd have thought? Sarah and I have a child, just like God said, and we're beginning to grow this family, and he said this land's going to be ours, and this land is going to be ours. And so everything's going great. So Abraham sits down, gets ready to retire. But there's one more twist. And in fact, he doesn't realize it, but when things seem like they're going just perfectly, he's about to face the biggest test of his entire life. And I want you to realize that this is an Abraham, kind of like you or me, that we've had some experience in our faith and we feel like we're along our faith journey, we're mature in our faith, and we feel like, God, I think I've got you figured out. And sometimes it's at that time of our life when some of the biggest tests, the biggest challenges to our faith happen. Well, that's what happens to Abraham in chapter 22. It says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he says, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, 
and I want you to go to the region of Mount Moriah. According to Jewish tradition, this is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's where he's telling him to go, right on the, on the top of the Temple Mount. And in fact, when we go to Israel and we get up on the Temple Mount where the Muslim mosques are, I'm going to show you, that's where the Jews think this event happened. But he says, I want you to travel. I want you to go to this mountain. At that time, it's a mountain. There's no, no city there. Go to this mountain, and I want you to offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, this is probably one of the most powerful and difficult uh, stories in the Bible because what God is saying is, look, Abraham, I want you to take what is most dear to you. I want you to take what you think God gave you, which he gave it to you, he says, and I want you to take the very thing that's going to give you all the promises, and I want you to let go of it. I want you to turn away from it. And Abraham faces this huge test of faith. And as you read through the story, you realize he says, let's go. And he gets a couple of servants, and he gets Isaac, and he loads up the wood and the knife and things, and he heads on the way. And as they go on the journey, Isaac says to him, Dad, he says, I see we've got the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Well, Abraham knows what's going to happen. You just feel the, just the angst that he has to feel, the, the wrestling with his face. Is how could God do this? Is this really what God wants? It doesn't seem right. How does God expect me to, to endure this or go through it? Does that sound like us sometimes too? We get in situations just like that. I mean, not this exact situation, but we get in situations where we go, God, how can this be right? How can you really allow this to happen? How can you let this evil happen? How can you let this death occur? And we have the same feeling that Abraham has with God. I don't understand what you're doing. But he keeps going. And he holds on to this idea. First, he asks the question, is anything too hard for God? And God answered that and said, no. There's nothing too hard for God. And now he wonders, and he says, you know, somehow, I don't know how, but God will provide. And so they get there, and uh, when they get there, Abraham literally builds it, and he says, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. And he takes the knife, and he's about to literally sacrifice his son. When the angel calls to Abraham, and he says, here I am, he says, stop. He says, don't touch the boy. He says, you have shown your faith. In other words, you understand now that you're willing to trust God in the face of something you can't see. And so he turns around, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, and so he sacrifices the ram instead. And it says, Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. Now, there's a really interesting play on that. I'd like it to stick in your head because this is so applicable to us. That word for provide, rach in Hebrew, means see. It's almost always translated the Lord sees. And by the way, the word provide is pro before and vide is, is video. So to provide essentially, I mean, its root means to see something ahead of time. So if I'm going to provide you with dinner, I have foreseen the need to give you dinner. That Our English word captures a little bit of that idea of seeing. And so it's when it says God foresees it, it means that God has taken care of it. God provides. And I think there's power in that. I mean, when we have faith that God provides, we're not only having faith that God is big enough, but that God knows what's happening, and he foresees. 
the answer. That's really key to our faith because we don't know how. We don't know why, but we trust that God does, that he has foreseen this and he will provide for the situation. And that's why Abraham names that place, God will provide. And so that story of you know, the story of Isaac and the testing of Abraham kind of completes his journey of faith. And I hope that as you look at it, you realize that's something I can identify with. This Abraham isn't this wonderful guy of faith who never stumbled. This is an ordinary guy who got chosen by God and sent on a mission, and he trusted God, and he wrestled with, will God provide and how will he provide? I don't know if you could think of a better description of the Christian life as well. Well, let me pause there, and let's talk about some questions before we look at a couple of lessons from that. Okay. Um, are the Palestinians of today descendants of Ishmael? Are the Palestinians today descendants of Ishmael? Let me give you just the short version. No. The Palestinians of today do not trace their lineage back to that time frame. I mean, some of them, could they be Arabs? Yes, some of them are Arabs, so in some sense they, they could. But the inhabitants of Palestine have been mixed and imported through centuries upon centuries. The time of Abraham is about 2000 BC. So in the 4,000 years since then, the people who inhabited that land before Israel was formed as a nation in the 1940s are not indigenous people. The land of Palestine didn't even get its name to be called Palestine until Jesus' time, when the Romans called it that. Before that, it was various things, but it was the land of Canaan in the time of Abraham. So the people who call themselves Palestinians don't really have a link to this era or what's happening here. What is the nation of Ishmael that's referenced in Genesis 17:20? Is that the land of the Arabian Nights? Well, I don't know so much about the Arabian Nights, but when you, when you look at where Ishmael settled, uh, and this is according to Muslim tradition as well as Jewish tradition, it's in uh, Saudi Arabia. It's in the Arabian Peninsula, and hence the name. Uh, this, is, this is the Arab people. So, yeah, basically that part of the world is where Ishmael and his descendants settled. Why did God wait till Sarah was so old before Isaac was born? Why wait so long? It's really interesting because Abraham hears the first call when he's 75 years old. Forget the ages. I just want you to see the gap. 75 years old, and Isaac is born, he says 100, but he was 99, according to the scriptures. So think about that. 24 years he waited for that promise. Why? That's an interesting question, because you and I probably ask that question, too. Not over a span of 24 years. Sometimes I wonder why God doesn't answer my prayers before the next morning. You know, I mean, what's the holdup here? But why would God do that? It obviously serves God's purpose. One of the things it did was it taught Abraham. It, it helped form his faith. I don't know about you, but if I pray for something today and I get it tomorrow, my faith isn't any bigger. I'm happy, but my faith isn't any bigger. So it, it did things inside Abraham. The other thing is, is that if they have a child right away, it's, it's also possible to say, well, is that God or is it not God? The way this happened, everybody knows that had to be God. 
And you'll see God doing that sometimes. He'll do it in a way that makes the point to the world. You'll see it in the book of Exodus, by the way. Why didn't God take the Israelites out of Egypt just like that? Why do they have to wait? Why do you have the ten plagues on Egypt? To teach the world something. So I think it served God's purposes to do it in that way and at that time. Because now there's no doubt whatsoever that God is obviously involved here. Good question. We see different spellings of Abraham's name and Sarah's name. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Uh, okay, so I'll make this brief. Technically speaking, uh, Sarai and Sarah mean the same thing. They both mean princess. One is an older Hebrew ending. One is, one is a more normal Hebrew ending. So she gets renamed, but it's the same, means the same thing. Abram and Abraham both mean about the same thing. What's significant there is not the name that gets changed to, it's the renaming. That's still, by the way, a Jewish tradition today amongst uh, Orthodox Jews. The idea of having your Hebrew name and that name is given to you is, is sort of like a new beginning. And there are times in your life when your rabbi uh, will rename people to break the path, you know, break the path of your past, a, a renaming starts you on a new path. And so this idea of renaming carries with it making things new and altering your trajectory. That's what happens with Abraham and Sarah. At a certain point in their life, he said, you know what? I have chosen you and I am changing the trajectory of your life, changing the trajectory of history. So the significance is the renaming. There's no huge significance to the names themselves. Good question. Why is Isaac referred to as Abraham's only son? What about Ishmael? That's a great question. Let me tell you what the Jewish rabbis, particularly Rashi, a guy named Rashi who lived way back in uh, 12th century uh, AD. I mean, it's back in the Middle Ages. And they thought a lot about that. And so they imagined a conversation between God and Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son. And Abraham says to him, I have two sons. And he says, your only son. And Abraham said, well, they're each an only son to their mother. Ishmael's an only child to Hagar. And Isaac's an only child to Sarah, the one you love. He says, but I love them both. And God says, Isaac. And so they understood that phrasing, take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, as just kind of being that dialogue with Abraham and, and helping Abraham to understand, you think you have two sons, but you only have one. You love both your sons, but only one is chosen. Take Isaac, the child of promise. So it's interesting the way that's worded, and no one knows, but the Jewish sages have always thought that that was the conversation with God to bring Abraham around to understand, it's going to be Isaac, the one I told you about, that's going to inherit the promise. Yeah, it's interesting the way that's phrased, and that's, that's why they thought it was phrased that way. Is the phrase only son a foreshadowing of God's sacrifice of his only son? Absolutely. That's a great question. This whole incident is a huge foreshadow. Hopefully you've seen through this whole story, we keep thinking, oh, and by the way, that's about Jesus. Oh, and by the way, that's about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus here. In other words, God is leading all of history to that point. 
Even this covenant, as we get further on, we'll talk about that more. Even this covenant starts to point toward Jesus. But this event is hugely about Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of the child of promise. And God requires a sacrifice. And it's faith that makes this happen. And so you take the one and only son, the beloved son, and you give him up for God's purposes. Abraham wasn't actually called to to physically give up Isaac. But later, God himself will give up his one and only beloved son to accomplish the promise. Is is clearly a foreshadowing. Could they have known that? No. When you and I look back and we can see the unfolding of God's plan, the Akita, which by the way, that's the Hebrew name for this story. This story is so famous it has a name. It's called the binding. The Akita, the binding of Isaac, is, is so clearly a foreshadowing of what God's going to do. And this is where God's so brilliant. All these things he's doing through history and these events, you and I can now go, whoa, look what he foresaw and look what he was predicting. It's powerful. Why are all the people in these pictures light-skinned? All the people in these pictures what? Light-skinned. Light-skinned. That's a good question. Uh, and if, if I show you the more middle-aged ones, they actually have on middle-aged clothing. And it's like, what's up with that? You know, I mean, you know, like the little tights and the frumpy uh, outfits and all. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. And so they painted them in the likeness of people at the time. And that was just the way the art worked. I like to show you art, classically great art, in case you get bored listening to me. I at least want you to have something interesting to look at. That's why I always put something great there. So we're getting an art education, even if the class gets boring. But I don't know why they all look so Anglo-Saxon, you know, and not Semitic at all. Um, the traditional belief is that Abraham came from Ur. But what about claims that he actually came from further east around India? Yeah, well, there are actually all kinds of interesting things. Uh, but this text talks about Abraham. I mean, there are people that believe all kinds of things about this. I'm telling you what Christians, you know, Orthodox Christian believe. There are people that believe Abraham never really existed. He's just a mythical figure. There are people that, that theorize all kinds of things. The text, though, situates him. And I'm going to argue that the history and the archaeology situate him very well in Mesopotamia of 2000 BC. So, yeah, there are plenty of ideas of where he came from and who he really was and how the story should be different. But it's, it seems to me that both the history and the archaeology support the idea. I find it to be very consistent. Well, let me give you a couple of, of just kind of ideas out of this. One is you see the idea of promise and the idea of faith. And I want to make this observation. God made promises, and he took a long time by Abraham's standards to deliver. But at the end of the story, did God do everything he said he was going to do? Yes, he did. Did he do it in the way Abraham thought? No, he didn't. And is that not true for you and me? Is there a lesson there? God will do everything he says he's going to do, but not necessarily in the way, and certainly not necessarily in the time that we want. Second thing is you've got promise and then faith. I know you tend to think of the Old Testament to be about covenants and rules, and it kind of is, but you see faith from the very beginning. What is God fundamentally asking Abraham? I want you to trust me. Do you believe that anything's too hard for the Lord? Do you believe that God will provide? That's exactly the same question that the gospel asks. What does it say? 
How are you and I saved? We're saved by God's grace through faith. Exactly the same thing. The interesting thing about Abraham is, you, and this is a great story, and I've only given you a couple of examples of his humanity, his weakness. As you read through, you'll see many, many more. Abraham is never commended for anything except his faith. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say, Abraham is God's chosen people because he was the best educated, or that he behaved the best, or he never told a lie, or he was just a good guy, or he was really handsome. There's never given anything that's said about Abraham except this. He was faithful. Did he struggle? Did he question? Yeah. But did he do what God said? Yeah. At the end of the day, he trusted God. There's never any other commendation of Abraham than that. And I find that very encouraging because in the gospel, if you've ever noticed, nothing in Jesus ever said, I need you to measure up. I need you to act good enough, and then I'll let you in. I need to, he doesn't. What does he say? I called you to be faithful. Do you trust me? Will you follow me? That's exactly Abraham's story. He said, Abraham, you going to follow me? He says, where are we going? I'll tell you later. You going to follow me? And that's exactly what Jesus says to you. You want to follow me? You want to follow Christ? Yeah, where's he going? Man, I don't know. It's a wild ride. We're just going. Wherever he's going, that's where we're going. It's exactly the same story. This story is about promise. This story is about faith. And that's still our story. It's about promise and it's about faith. God can do anything he said he will do and God will provide. Well, our next story takes this down the road away into a fascinating story of Jacob. But if you don't mind, I'd like to pause and next week I'd like to do something a little different. As long as we're here and as long as current events are what they are, and as long as our president has gotten himself into a lot of hot water at the National Prayer Breakfast talking about Christian crusades are kind of on a par with Islamic Jihad. And so and I'm not making a political statement. I'm just telling you, you can't pick up a newspaper without the offense at that kind of comparison. So if you don't mind, as long as we're here talking about uh, Isaac and Ishmael and our president's kind of in hot water over talking about the 4,000 year later, problem of Isaac and Ishmael. If you, if you don't mind, let's take next week, and I'd like to talk about this. It's timely for where we are, so let's pause on this, and I'd like to talk about jihad and the crusades, and I'd like to give you the real story. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm, this isn't a polemic against any, what anybody has said. I just want you to know the real story. At least know what actually happened with the idea of jihad and what actually happened with crusades, and then you can make up your own mind. The reason it ties into our story right now is, when we talk about this, we're going to talk about the legacy of Isaac and the legacy of Ishmael. So, invite your friends. Next week, we explore what's currently in the news. Is Islamic jihad pretty much the same thing as, as a Christian crusades? And is there any moral difference whatsoever? That's what we'll talk about next week. Hope to see you then.